Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up With Unmoving Target. This is the May 13th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are now providing twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the Resource tab. Today's learning objectives are discuss the effects of contact tracing, describe testing modalities for COVID-19 illness, and review data from randomized controlled trials. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you for your time, Dr. Awater. Thank you, Faith. And as a reminder, this program is only possible through the generous support of DKB Med, also the Postgraduate Institute of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For additional COVID-19 resources and educational activities, uh, you can go to the website at covid19.dkbmed.com. So as we head into mid-May, many states are lifting restrictions. And I think many people, at least that are public health experts and infectious disease people think that with this virus, that this will generally mean at least a steady to increased number of cases in the forthcoming weeks as perhaps people are not taking as much guard Already, uh, as expected in Wuhan City, for example, in China, despite the fact that they had no cases, there are now clusters. And I think with the easy transmissibility of this virus and asymptomatic shedding, uh, this is our future, as it were. So it's just incumbent, I think, for us as medical professionals and also to advise our patients to really use whatever techniques possible to try to help limit further spread. Uh, One of the uh, key issues, I think, at least in the United States, has been uh, some confusion because states do have their own rules, but also the federal responses have often uh, been seen as not being very clear, forthright, and so on. This uh, is by no means scientific, but it interested me because it was a survey of global public relation professionals on which countries they thought in terms of their governments or states uh, issued some of the clearest uh, communications. And, And the reason I put it up is New Zealand and Germany both have been recognized as sort of handling this in a way such that transmission rates and new cases came down much faster, more effectively, 
and so on. And uh, a lot were attributed to the clear communications from the government. So, of course, uh, these probably go to some degree hand in hand, and I can't attribute all success to communications, but it does emphasize the importance of people trying to understand what possibly accomplishable and uh, and the limitations and so on. So I, I think this is always important messaging, even in our local health systems, but also to our wider societies. And it's important because some states are engaging in contact tracing, uh, much more so than others, uh, California and Massachusetts, other states as well. And if levels can be kept down and there's robust amounts of testing, then people can be aware of whether they're infected, whether they need to stay home and isolate themselves. Without these, then this kind of unfettered spread would occur. And I'm afraid that this uh, really contributes to some mixed messaging uh, along these lines. So I think local states will try their best, but different states will have different rules. And, and certainly it, it will be confusing, I think, to many to understand the rationale. And, and people do chafe, of course, at uh, having their individual liberties curtailed, but at the same time, uh, it is for a, a better benefit. One of the things I just wanted to mention as an advance is growing amounts of evidence that we probably don't have to do the somewhat barbaric nasopharyngeal swab for molecular testing. Uh, this was in fact done because this is a routine with influenza. Interestingly, coronavirus probably has more predilection to the lower tract in part because there are many more viral receptors, the ACE2 receptors in the lower tract. But it is clear that oral spit tests, for example, into a tube and analysis are much more comfortable and are being pursued. Uh, one by Rutgers has won FDA approval and the manufacturing is now increasing there uh, in the tens of thousands. And I think this offers a better way to have quick and easy rapid testing that might help institutions and workplaces. The uh, issue of whether the nasopharyngeal swab is as accurate as the salivary sample has been looked at in a number of papers, but here's one where it looks very equivalent. In fact, can't say that it's better, but it's certainly not worse at all and can track relatively well in terms of matching samples and the number of copies that might be identified to reflect so-called viral carriage between the saliva and the swab. So my bet is over time, a swab of saliva or a spit test uh, will be probably how most tests will be performed, uh, hopefully uh, months moving ahead. Now, I'd like to focus a bit on treatment. Uh, remdesivir, of course, had been in the news and the focus of last week. We still do not have any data from the NIH trial, uh, so we know anything more than what was announced in late April. But this um, pivotal trial, though, has adapted, meaning that remdesivir has become the standard of care. And because of that, they are now using a combination therapy in this trial with a second drug, an immunomodulator called baricitinib. Uh, and this is a JAK1, JAK2 subtype inhibitor that works at interrupting some key 
proteins that are involved in genes that need to be expressed to produce uh, inflammatory molecules. Uh, it's a drug that's been used, for example, in more refractory rheumatoid arthritis. And, and the thought here that it would have a role if used uh, along with an antiviral to be complementary, especially for patients that might be evolving into the so-called hyperinflammatory or cytokine uh, storm. One issue that has been in the press has been distribution issues. Gilead has generously made a one and a half million doses available for treatment throughout the United States, but it appears that only half of it will be actually used under the Emergency Use Act that was authorized by the Food and Drug Administration. People that are in trials will get drug, uh, but this distribution to states has not been uh, very transparent. Many people have asked questions. Uh, initially, the thought was allocation based on the number of cases. For example, uh, at Johns Hopkins in our health system, only one of hot five hospitals has gotten drugs so far as of this uh, taping on May 13th, and we've gotten enough uh, vials of remdesivir to treat two patients. So there's clearly probably not going to be enough to go around, but how it's being distributed and allocated, uh, what seems to be in, in phases of distribution uh, remains to be seen. There was a paper that came out uh, on a different uh, strategy, uh, one that takes a leaf from how we treated hepatitis C in earlier days with the use of an interferon product, in this case, interferon beta 1b. And this drug was compared in a triple therapy, which was very common in Asian countries who used a protease inhibitor from HIV, the lopinavir and ritonavir along with ribavirin. So this was an interferon-ribavirin combo, really taken from hepatitis C, and randomized to just the uh, protease inhibitor alone for 14 days. And this phase two trial was open label, but randomized. And uh, the primary endpoint was following until the nasopharyngeal swab turned negative. So patients, 127, uh, were evaluated here. And what was found is that the combination group uh, had reduced viral carriage, as you can see here, uh, that they had their swabs turn negative at seven days versus 12. Uh, there was also a faster alleviation of symptoms by what they called the NEWS2 score by four days. So I think this is encouraging as fostering an immune response. There's, this is a small study. There are reservations that interferon would only exacerbate potentially immune responses and foster more of the cytokine storm issue. It wasn't really identified with only typical side effects. Um, some Others have criticized the study as it didn't really have a true placebo arm, that uh, their control arm, as it were, was lopinavir, uh, ritonavir. And many feel that the real uh, drug here that was operative was the interferon as opposed to the ribavirin or the protease inhibitor. But I, I do think this is a kind of approach that might have a role potentially with further study, especially if combined, for example, with an antiviral compound such as remdesivir. So uh, just uh, in the past few days, the issue of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, the a drug and drug combination that has gotten very early press, the anti-malarial 
and with some French investigators claiming that a combination with azithromycin significantly reduced viral load is now underway in a placebo-controlled randomized trial in the United States. So there has not yet been any high-quality data regarding this. But I thought it was of interest that this paper appeared in JAMA based on use in New York State and had 1,400 patients. On, this is a retrospective study, so trying to make uh, genuine insights into treatment effect uh, with retrospective use of drugs is very difficult, although somewhat improved by very large numbers. But as you can see here, the adjusted in-hospital mortality uh, really had no effect and, was, and appeared a bit worse in patients that had gotten hydroxychloroquine or worse off even yet with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin with about a 35% increased mortality identified with concerns of cardiotoxicity. Azithromycin, I wouldn't say is protective. The numbers are small. And if you look at the graph, the azithromycin line falls below, but the hydroxychloroquine and the neither drug line are quite superimposed actually. Lastly, to date, the information from preprints or published studies were looked at on an interim basis in a meta-analysis. Of course, this is a moving target, but I just wanted to emphasize uh, the fact that to date for these anti-malarials, uh, this review of drugs found nothing to endorse or refute either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. And this was the same conclusion reached by the NIH guidelines, which have been uh, most recently updated this past week. With that, uh, Faith, I believe you have some questions. Thank you for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. If we are not able to address your question in this session, we will try to address it in another. Dr. Allwater, first question. Are recommendations changing surrounding precautions for pregnant women given the recent articles in Journal of American Medical Association and The Lancet, which showed increased risks of miscarriage, stillbirth, and preterm delivery in mothers who contracted COVID-19? Yes, so I think everyone, initially had concerns about women who were pregnant and contracting COVID-19. I think much like in influenza, uh, we have taken a stance that uh, pregnant women should be very cautious uh, with social distancing and avoid situations that could place them at risk for acquiring the virus. I'll also mention that many institutions, even with the Emergency Use Act of uh, the FDA for remdesivir are prioritizing pregnant women as those who would receive this drug first ahead of others. Thank you. Next question. It has been discussed recently that there are potentially several different strains of this novel coronavirus. What are the latest research findings related to these different strains? Yes, many people have asked whether the virus may mutate and become either more or less virulent. My take from the sequencing studies really are helping with the epidemiology. We know that uh, strains uh, on the East Coast seem to probably have been acquired more from Europe, whereas those from the West Coast 
from Asia. But uh, this is something that I think is evolving. Many people have questioned whether the virus uh, will mutate significantly to the virus's advantage. If we were to become less virulent even than it is now, it would be uh, to its advantage as even more people would be uh, capable of spreading disease. But whether this will happen with this virus, I think is very difficult to say. And uh, may, I, I, I think we would probably just plan to have it uh, think that it will behave as it currently does for the foreseeable future. As a RNA virus, this coronavirus doesn't mutate nearly as much as some others in that arena. Thank you. Next question. What do we know about the inflammatory condition being seen in children that has been associated with COVID-19? So initially, when reports were coming out of China, it was clear that children were not nearly as affected as older adults. And in fact, children between 1 and 10 were really rarely hospitalized and adolescents also uncommonly, unless if they had health problems, perhaps. More recently, though, following experience in Europe, also North America, and particularly in the Mid-Atlantic and New York City area, there have been descriptions of children who have developed Kawasaki's disease with findings that this occurred after acquiring uh, the novel coronavirus. Kawasaki's has always been a mysterious illness that had autoimmune features and has always been thought to be triggered perhaps by viruses or certain bacteria. So uh, I think this is something we don't yet know why some children are afflicted, but it is yet another aspect where I think we have to be somewhat cautious for reopening schools. Obviously, this is quite rare, uh, but it is something that we don't understand. And, and Kawasaki's disease can be severe, affecting the heart and causing aneurysms of coronary arteries. So and is treated interestingly with a variety of approaches, some of which have been postulated for the hyperinflammatory response of COVID-19. So still much to learn. As always, this is such a, a mystifying yet fascinating virus in terms of how many different potential issues it can cause in the human body. Okay, and our last question is, could you please comment on Sweden and New Zealand's disparate approaches to COVID-19? Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't say I have great personal knowledge, but I, I would make the following comments. Uh, and, and it wraps into what I said earlier about New Zealand. There was very effective communication. Uh, there has been um, uh, accordance amongst the population to adhere to this in a very orderly way. And they were able to, they didn't have so many cases, but were able to bring them down and have been, uh, beginning to liberalize their restrictions and also discussions of so-called travel bubble such that people could move about between New Zealand and Australia, for example, similarly. The Prime Minister has been quite lauded in this regard for just helping direct this in a clear way with incorporation of public health officials. Um, on the other hand, Sweden has not taken to restrictions. Uh, they have practiced social distancing. They did not close down the economy. But I'll also say at least uh, my last look at the records, they had a higher death rate than in the United States. Uh, of course, their economy uh, was not nearly as severely affected by uh, the measures that other countries have taken. I think it's still too soon to tell in the long run 
and also the adherence in, in Scandinavia may be different uh, than what you might experience in other countries. Okay, thank you again. As a reminder to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any question or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. To all of our listeners, please be on the lookout for our next activity this Friday. We will send out an email when it is available later this week. Any questions can be submitted by sending them to qa at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Faith, and I wanted to thank you all for listening and wish you, your families, and your colleagues all to stay well and stay safe. Mm -hmm.